0: Beginning in the late 1950s and extending into the 1960s, it was believed by some prominent psychiatrists that separating twins who were to be adopted would be good for their mental and physical health. One such psychiatrist was Dr. Viola Bernard, then a professor at Columbia University. The reasoning went that adoptive parents would be overburdened by twins and that children adopted by themselves would receive more attention from their parents than if they were adopted together. This idea quickly caught on in Louise Wise Adoption Agency in New York City. Now defunct, the adoption agency began splitting apart twins and even triplets, adopting each out to different families without informing the parents that their adopted child had a twin sibling. Practice of separating twins and triplets in infancy caught the attention of Dr. Peter Neubauer, another prominent child psychiatrist from the New York City Center for Child Development. Dr. Neubauer saw a unique opportunity in the splitting of infant twins. His idea was to conduct a study following the development of each of these siblings as they matured. The study was designed to see what commonalities emerged between siblings and could be attributed to genetic factors and what differences seem to be influenced by environmental and social factors, such as the parenting style of the adoptive parents and their access to resources dictated by things like socioeconomic status. In theory, by watching and studying the lives of the siblings, researchers would be able to answer the classic psychological debate as to whether people are more influenced in their psychosocial development by natural factors, such as genetics, or by how they are nurtured, such as the quality of their upbringing, which included parental factors, education, friends, and experiences. This experiment, which included several sets of twins and at least one set of triplets, continued for many years throughout the 1960s and 70s with all of the test children and their parents completely unaware of the true nature of the study or the fact that each child being studied had a twin adopted to different parents who were also being studied. A chance meeting in 1980 occurred when Robert Shafran arrived for the fall semester at a local college. Other students, believing that he was someone named Edward Galland, greeted Robert enthusiastically. It was a keen-eyed fellow student who realized that Robert was not, in fact, Edward, but that the two men must be related due to their amazing similarity. A quick phone call confirmed their suspicion. Both Robert and Edward exchanged cursory information, including the name of the adoption agency both of them had been placed with, and their birth dates, which matched. Still skeptical, Robert and his college friend sped to Edward's house some two hours away. Robert and Edward's story was an amazing one on its own. A picture of the two men, taken the moment each of them first met, looked like one man looking into a mirror. The uniqueness of the story twins separated at birth and reunited at age 19, immediately became a pre-social media viral sensation, with news outlets quickly picking up on the incredible story. One article, which included a picture of the twins, their birth date, and the name of the Louise Wise Adoption Agency, reached the home of the Kelman family. The mother of David Kelman was immediately dumbfounded as she looked at the picture of the newly famous twins. Her son, who was also adopted through the Louise Wise Agency, bared an uncanny resemblance to the twins she saw in the picture, including the similarity in each of the men's hands. Some calls were made, and to the even greater surprise of everyone following the story, the story of long-lost twins evolved into one of long-lost triplets. Things moved fast for the newly reunited triplet brothers, with David, Edward, and Robert enjoying their newfound fame and each other's company. They moved in together and even went into business together, opening a successful restaurant that drew hundreds of tourists who were there to witness the story of the triplets up close. But questions lingered. How had the triplets not known of each other? And more importantly, why were their parents not informed? The adoptive parents of the triplets met to share information, which culminated in a trip back to the Louise Wise Agency, where they were handed less than satisfactory answers as to why the triplets were separated. 1995 proved to be a very trying year for the triplets. Edward, who wrestled with depression, committed suicide. That same year, Journalist Lawrence Wright published an article in the New Yorker documenting his exploration into the twin experiments conducted by Dr. Peter Neubauer. The full realization and extent of the experiments that the triplets and numerous others were subjected to without their consent started to become clear. In the end, of the siblings that had been studied as part of Dr. Neubauer's study, at least three have committed suicide. Numerous observations were made of the triplets during the study that suggested each of them suffered from separation issues during childhood related to growing up without their siblings. These separation issues included self-injurious behaviors, anxiety, and depression. The study continues to be cloaked in mystery. Findings of the study were never published, and Dr. Neubauer remained vague about his research until his death in 2008. Triplet David Kelman was able to petition for access to the study's findings, but was given roughly 10,000 pages of heavily redacted records that did not state any formal findings. To date, the full records of the twin studies sit at the Yale University Library, their access controlled by the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. The study is not slated for public access until the year 2065. This episode is about twin studies. Welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McConaughey
1: and Dr. David Morelos.
0: David, this topic was actually suggested by our listener, Mark, and it was one that we've wanted to talk about for a while. We first started thinking about it when we watched the documentary, Three Identical Strangers. It's actually currently streaming on Netflix, and if any of you out there haven't watched it yet, I think we would both highly recommend it. Absolutely. It's a very heartbreaking but fascinating story.
1: Yeah, so to start off, I wanted to say that this topic has been fascinating to research and think about. I read that twins are probably the single most studied population in contemporary psychology, and as such, there is a ton of information out there about them that, once you start diving into, becomes even more and more interesting. Obviously, we can't cover all the topics related to twin studies here, but hopefully we can give our listeners a small overview.
0: You know, I didn't know that they are the single most studied population.
1: I don't know if that's statistically true, but I think that It seems true. I'll put it to you that way.
0: Okay, so there's a lot of studies out there that talk about twins.
1: Yeah, and it's because of how twins lend themselves to the study of psychology, which we'll get into. So I wanted to begin this episode by talking about what was probably the most infamous of the twin studies. I think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the twin studies that were conducted by Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele before and during World War II. In the documentary, Three Identical Strangers, Robert Schaffrin references the study that he and his brothers were unwittingly subjected to by calling it, quote, some Nazi stuff. Of course, he's making reference to the horrible experiments that were conducted on twin siblings, mostly Jewish, but also Roma and other nationalities. In the articles that I read, and we'll have links to these on our website, it was reported that roughly 3,000 children were subjected to these experiments, and that the twins were subjected to all manner of painful, debilitating, and dangerous tests to include forced inseminations, injections with various diseases, amputations, and even murder. If the test subjects died, Mengele would then study the bodies of those he had killed.
0: That is horrific. It's, I mean, I, I've heard, you know, a little bit about Mangala studies, but I didn't quite realize that they were that.
1: There is actually a common. website that we'll have a link to that uh, documents a number of individual stories of some of the kids that went through them.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I'm sure. Truly. The main goal of these studies was to, of course, study how genetic traits could be manipulated in order to breed, so to speak, a Third Reich super-race of people. This was known as eugenics, which was a term coined in 1883 by Sir Francis Galton, an Englishman who was, incidentally, a distant cousin of Charles Darwin, and who was inspired by Darwin's writings. The theory goes, as most people probably already know, that by valuing certain genetic traits and by limiting or eliminating others, a group of people can slowly weed out undesirable traits such as disease, criminal behavior, disability, and, at the time it was thought, things like homosexuality. So a very simplified version of this idea might be if we wanted to promote height in our group or tribe. By limiting the right to procreate to only tall people, it would ensure, theoretically at least, that offspring would then be tall, as anyone in the group that was deemed to be short would not be allowed to reproduce. Over several generations, it might get to be so that the entire group was made up of tall people. So we can see eugenics in practice today by looking at our dogs. We own chihuahuas, Jessica.
0: Yes, we do.
1: Yeah a breed of dog that has only been made possible through something akin to eugenics or the singling out of desirable traits and then breeding dogs to emphasize those traits and eliminate others. You can also see this kind of idea in nature whereby animals compete for mates or the right to breed in an effort to ensure that the strongest, or shall I say the most environmentally advantageous genes, are passed on in the bloodline to help propagate the group and promote its survival over time. Now this is based on an assumption that I'll get back to in a minute. It's been argued that rituals that we humans engage in, say a number of men playing football, is really a kind of expression of this. The best football player, let's say the quarterback, earns, so to speak, the right to then quote-unquote breed, this is in quotations again, with the most attractive female, let's say the cheerleader. Both engage in physical activities that denote the pinnacle of youth, health, and other traits of genetic desirability. The football players engage in this game, then, to see who is the alpha male. And then, he is encouraged to mate with his prize, the female, through other traits of genetic desirability, denotes fertility and the best chance for the male to pass along his genetic material into the future through healthy offspring when combined with hers. Again, a very basic way of describing what we're talking about here. Okay, fine. Fast forward to the 1930s and 40s and the rise of Nazism, and we can see where this idea can be easily perverted for the sake of justifying the mistreatment of anyone who is not considered to be part of whatever the, quote, master race is considered to be. Obviously, in Nazi Germany, those who most closely resembled what the Nazis considered to be Aryan in nature were considered to be those who were the most genetically desirable. Mengele took this basic idea of eugenics and implemented it as a justification for the horrible experiments he conducted on twins to determine if disease and things like criminal behavior was inherited and if they could, through the pseudoscience of eugenics, be engineered or bred out of people. To do this, Mengele ordered Auschwitz personnel to separate twins as they arrived to the camp. Once separated, they were housed in different quarters and never allowed to interact with any of the other prisoners. Then they were subjected to all manner of insidious experiments. I won't get too much into just how horrifying these experiments could be, but there are some places where you can read personal stories of those who were part of these experiments and the psychopathic behavior they witnessed from Mangala. Anyway, it would seem that these basic concepts are things we talk about when making statements about people dating, say, quote, within their league or with someone who is their match in attractiveness or genetic desirability, and how we can sometimes be puzzled by couples who don't match in this way. Of course, there are many ways in which we judge attractiveness, but you get the idea. Just as a quick aside, I was reminded of the 1997 sci-fi movie Gattaca, which also starred a writer I use a lot on this podcast, Gore Vidal.
0: I loved that movie.
1: Yeah, it was actually pretty good. It wasn't a huge hit, but it was a good movie.
0: Well, I had a huge crush on Ethan Hawke, but it was also just a really interesting movie.
1: Right, and, I, and that's why this reminds me of it. Yeah. For those of you who have never seen this movie, it might be worth seeking out and watching as it plays with the themes we're talking about today. It's set in a dystopian future where only those deemed worthy by way of genetic engineering are allowed into certain professions and jobs, while others who are deemed genetically inferior are relegated to being a sort of lower class. So now I want to pivot and talk about Lawrence Wright's 1995 article entitled Double Mystery. For those of you who have seen the documentary Three Identical Strangers, Wright is the journalist who broke the story of Neubauer's studies and was interviewed for the movie as well. We'll have a link to this article on our website as it's exceptionally well-researched and well-written. The article starts off with the story of identical twins Amy and Beth, both of whom were separated under the advice of Dr. Peter Neubauer who was an advisor for the adoption agency that the girls were adopted through for the reason that adoption agencies at the time believed that adopting twins would place a burden on adoptive parents, which to me sounds more like it was just easier to adopt out singles rather than twins.
0: Yeah, it kind of sounded that way to me too.
1: Right, but that's just my opinion. Much like the triplets, both Amy and Beth were adopted out to different sets of parents who remained ignorant that their child had a twin sibling. They were followed by researchers as they grew up, including observations on their parents and how their parental styles affected each of the daughters. This also included socioeconomic considerations, as Beth's family was well-off, while Amy's family was considered to be lower-middle class. The most interesting difference in the family dynamic, however, came with the differences between the adoptive mothers. Amy's mother was considered to be highly insecure and threatened by her daughter while Beth's mother was much more warm and supportive of her. There were differences between the fathers as well, with Beth's father being available and supportive, and Amy's father believing that his daughter was an outsider and a disappointment. Interestingly, and quite predictably, Amy started to have problems from a young age. In the article, Wright describes Amy as, quote, shy, socially indifferent, suffering from a serious learning disorder, pathologically immature, she was the stereotypical picture of a rejected child. The theory went that if Amy had parents more like Beth's, that perhaps she would not have suffered the myriad of problems that she did growing up. And yet, an examination of the research material suggested that Beth had many of the same problems that Amy did, including a longing for a maternal affection that, according to Wright, was eerily the same as her identical sisters. An identical sister she didn't know she had, who was living a completely different life miles away. According to Wright, this is just one example that calls into question the idea that personality or character is created through experience. Okay, Wright goes on to make a number of interesting points, including the fact that the twins are on the rise and stand at about 11 out of every thousand. Which has to do with the fact that women are waiting for longer periods of time to have children, which increases the chances of twins or multiples. The other reason for an increase in identical multiples happened in 1985 when it was discovered how to superovulate women who are attempting to have children. So think of Octomom from a number of years ago and her fertility treatments. So Wright then begins a discussion of heredability, which is the idea that certain traits are handed down from our parents. The example that's used in the article is one where rats who are smart in solving mazes, bred with other rats who are smart in solving mazes, will continue to be, you guessed it, smart at solving mazes. Rats who are not, bred with other rats who are not, will continue to not be good at solving mazes. So let's get back to the whole example I gave earlier of creating a tribe or group of people who are all tall. One of the most interesting points that Wright points out is that genetically and theoretically, if selective breeding is practiced and only the tall people are allowed to breed, then we would get a group of people who were all tall over time. But this doesn't take into consideration the social and environmental factors needed to ensure that those genetic traits, which exist in the person as potentials, actually reach their fullest level of genetic growth. This could depend on things like access to the proper food and, of course, a safe environment in which to thrive where they are not killed or under constant stress from other groups who would seek to kill them. So here we have a strong interplay between the environment and the genetic potential of the people which can't be ignored. Wright goes on to explore studies that have been done as recently as the 1980s which found that twins also seem to have greater similarities as it pertained to things that would normally be thought to be influenced by the environment to include divorce, retirement, illness, death of a child, and mental illness of spouses. In cases like this, even twins raised apart were more alike than twins raised together.
0: So twins raised apart were more alike More than alike than
1: twins raised together.
0: Whoa, okay.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's fascinating, but that is definitely a point that he makes in the article. Okay. Wright also spent some time discussing the studies conducted at the University of Minnesota, which is something I know you're going to speak about, Dr. Mercono. Yeah. So I won't go into too much detail here except to highlight two study participants that I found remarkable. The studies at the University of Minnesota were led by Dr. Thomas Bouchard and his study twins, brothers separated at birth and reunited 39 years later. The Jim twins, as they were called, were Jim Lewis and Jim Springer. Okay, this case blew my mind.
0: I'm listening.
1: Listen to the similarities. Okay. Both had been married twice, first to a woman named Linda, then to a woman named Betty.
0: Get out.
1: Whoa.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay.
1: Both named their firstborn child James Allen.
0: Come on, David.
1: Each owned a dog in childhood named Toy. Each of them vacationed on the same beach in Florida. Both liked Miller Lite beer and smoked Salem cigarettes. Again, both of these men had lived completely separate lives. Amazing.
0: That is crazy.
1: Yeah. And there are other cases like this, with some amazing similarities as part of the Minnesota studies, such as Daphne Goodship and Barbara Herbert. Dr. Lewis Keith at Northwestern University made some observations, including watching unborn twins kiss each other and even fight with each other as they, pre-consciously of course, compete with each other over resources in the mother's womb. Wow. This kind of co-development, whereby we see acts of affection and even acts of sibling rivalry, is fascinating to think about in terms of their co-development before and after birth. One last piece that I came across while doing the research for this episode was the idea that identical twins can share psychic connections.
0: Oh my goodness. I want to hear this.
1: Okay. Guy Lyon Playfair, who was a British writer and paranormal investigator, did some informal experiments regarding twins and what looked like their ability to communicate telepathically. Obviously, this has been debated a great deal, but the idea is, again, another one of those fascinating ideas surrounding identical twins. I think we could probably do an episode just on that topic, huh, Dr. Makona?
0: Oh, yeah, that would be really interesting.
1: Yeah. So in terms of the fundamental nature versus nurture question on this, I, I have to admit I'm stumped. Yeah. To me, there is no question that there is no simple answer. It seems obvious, regardless of the debates that have raged on amongst psychologists for decades, that both nature and nurture have to be taken into consideration with dealing with the roots of human behavior. There are so many experiences that I've had in my life that I can point to and acknowledge as having a profound effect on who I am today. Just last weekend, I was doing an interview with my Ph.D. mentor, Dr. John Elfers, at Sophia University, and we chatted a bit about acknowledging how influences, including gentle pushes at the right time, encouragement when it was needed the most, and competent guidance can really make all the difference to someone. And the funny thing is, we don't always know when we're doing this for someone. I've had inmates tell me they remember something that I said for years that I don't even remember saying, but it certainly made a difference to them. There is also the idea that some things have a funny way of being passed down to us from our ancestors in a very embodied way that I find interesting as well. The saying, it's in my DNA, is really a statement that we make about our most basic nature, as if the characteristic that we're talking about has been handed down through generations. You know, in this sense, it was kind of funny. For our listeners out there who don't know, for most of my life, I never knew who my maternal biological grandparents were. My mother was adopted as a Korean War baby by some awesome grandparents back in the 50s, so my half-Caucasian and half-Korean mother grew up as a relatively normal working-class daughter in Southern California. Well, years passed, and I became more and more curious about our family history and convinced my mom to send a DNA sample to one of those services. I forgot which one. And amazingly, my mom was answered by a woman whom I found out is my cousin. Her father, of course, is my mother's half-brother. Anyway, it has been fascinating to find out more and more about my biological grandfather, who was Scots-Irish and raised in Georgia. He's definitely where I get my height from. I'm by far the tallest in my extended family, which has always befuddled my parents. (laughs) And of course, some of my genetic features as well. But what was also interesting was finding out things about my grandfather that connected us in different ways. For instance, I found out that my grandfather was a police officer for many years. So there is a law enforcement connection. One of the other ways that connected us together was that my grandfather was also a Mason. As I've mentioned in the past, I was a Malay, which is like being a Mason for boys too young to actually become Masons, but who are most likely going to later on after they turn 21. So that was an interesting connection. And so getting back to the movie Three Perfect Strangers, one of the points that journalist Lawrence Wright brought up was that when we make connections like these, we tend to overemphasize these types of similarities as the triplets did when they first met. As they grew older, differences between them started to emerge. In the movie, there is a mention of Robert and David having a significant falling out, with Robert leaving their restaurant business. Later, Edward succumbed to his depression and killed himself, which is something the other brothers obviously did not do. That's a pretty significant difference, I would argue. The decision to commit suicide can be influenced by so many factors, including how a person was raised in terms of receiving the love and support that allows them to manage these feelings in their own life, say by reaching out for help, versus those who fall victim to these feelings of hopelessness. At any rate, the similarities to my grandfather are definitely interesting to think about, but I can't ignore the differences as well. My grandfather was from the south, a region I've visited a few times. I will be honest when I say that the cultural differences from what I'm used to were so pronounced when I was in Georgia, Florida, or Kentucky that I truly felt like I was in another country. I don't mean this in a bad way or anything like that, but there were some significant cultural differences that I wasn't used to, to be sure. So this was something that wasn't handed down to me, so to speak, by my grandfather. So in that way, at least, I am definitely a product of growing up in Colorado. So where am I going with all of this? To me, it has always made sense that there is an interplay between what we are handed genetically and how our psychosocial environment influences these genetic factors. As in the case of the triplet Edward, in the movie, it explored how maybe, out of the three brothers, his father was probably the most emotionally distant. There was a little time spent on this in the movie. While this social dynamic may not have been solely responsible for Edward's depression, there is question as to whether or not it nudged, so to speak, his genetic potential for depression just enough and that this in some way was the match that lit the fuse. Both Robert and David, who did wrestle with depression, seemed to be able to manage it in healthier ways. I wonder if this was because they grew up feeling more emotionally secure and free to express their emotions. In this sense, it was David's father, it seemed, who was the most nurturing, and who the brothers bonded to the most after they reunited. In this way, David's psychosocial advantages, despite being from the working class family, seemed to better equip him to deal with depressive thoughts later in life than did Edwards, even though he was from a more economically privileged family. Anyway, I'll leave it there for now to let Dr. Makona get a word in edgewise. Like I mentioned earlier, the sheer amount of information on this topic is staggering, including the numerous questions these studies have raised, much less answered. So I think this will continue to be an interesting topic for years to come.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I have a feeling that we'll probably be revisiting twin issues in other episodes. Um, Like you talked about the one looking at psychic abilities and twins. That sounds pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So I actually wanted to discuss a couple of things related to this topic and um, one of them you already touched on a little bit. It's, you know, this probably the longest debate in the field of psychology, that of nature versus nurture. So back in the 17th century there was a British philosopher named John Locke and he had the belief that humans were not born with any innate knowledge or abilities. He believed that each human was born as a blank slate or a tabula rasa, and that everything was learned from one's environment. Locke did not have the benefit of understanding genetics, though, and we now know that while many things are learned, our genes and biology play a role in pretty much everything. While I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any modern-day psychologist arguing that it's only one or the other, there still continues to be great interest within the field about which is more prominent in any given issue. When we're talking about nature and nurture, what we're really discussing, as you mentioned, David, is, you know, biology versus environment, or what is innate versus what is learned. As you might imagine, this is something that's extremely difficult to determine for human beings. The main reason is that we can never take environment out of the picture. We can't raise people in sterile atmospheres where they're completely separated from environmental contingencies that shape our behavior. If you think about it, we are influenced in countless ways every single day. Most of these environmental influences occur outside of our conscious awareness. When we think of behavioral influences, there are many things that either reward behaviors, in other words, make us more likely to engage in them again in the future, or punish behaviors or decrease the likelihood we will repeat them. Add to that the human ability to learn from watching others, which is also called vicarious learning, as well as all of the environmental factors that influence our genes, such as exposure to toxic substances, exposure to nutrients, and general stimulation that encourages things such as speech acquisition, physical abilities, critical thinking, and so on. We can see how very complex this situation really is.
1: Wright made that point that this topic becomes infinitely more complex when we're dealing with human beings as opposed to animals.
0: Sure. So one of the ways that social scientists, including psychologists and psychiatrists, have attempted to weed out genes from environment is by doing these twin studies. More specifically, these studies examined monozygotic twins, which is the other term for identical twins, that were reared apart. And this was very interesting to researchers because identical twins share 100% of their DNA. Fraternal twins and siblings in general only share about 50% of their genes. So the theory has always been that researchers could examine traits in separated identical twins, and if there were similarities, it suggested it was more likely due to genes than environment, while any differences noted were more likely due to environment than genes. Now, of course, they can't ever say it's 100% genes or 100% environment because there would be no way to control for similarities in respective environments. There are, however, statistical analyses that can be done to help determine how much of the variance of a particular trait is due to certain factors. So while Dr. Neubauer's study is considered one of these twin studies, he never published the results, and in fact, no one can even really analyze all of the data until 2065. But there was another large-scale twin study where the results were published, and that was that one that you mentioned briefly, David, the Minnesota Twin Studies. And those, again, were conducted by Dr. Thomas Bouchard and his colleagues. There are actually several studies, but the one I'm talking about here is the Minnesota Twins Study of Twins Reared Apart, which was published in 1990. Now, there was an important difference between this study and those done by Neubauer. In the Minnesota study, Dr. Bouchard located twins who had been adopted into separate homes. He solicited participants from the United States, as well as the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, China, New Zealand, Sweden, and Germany. So Dr. Bouchard did not purposefully separate twins so he could study them. They had already been separated, presumably by adoption agencies, and were later contacted by him. In this particular study, the participants were an average age of 41 and had spent on average five months with their twin prior to separation. They were also reunited at an average age of 30. So, on average, they had about 11 years of interaction prior to the time Dr. Bouchard studied them. So, David, you probably already know what they found because you read a little bit about these twin studies. Uh Uh-huh. But they found that identical twins reared apart were very similar with regard to things such as temperament, social attitudes, and even career choices. And apparently, choice in women named Linda.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: he he also found that IQ was about 70% attributable to genes and 30% to environment. It was pretty interesting stuff, but what was also interesting was that no single trait of all the traits he and his researchers examined were solely the result of genetics or solely environment. Even traits that were highly correlated between the twins did not have a perfect correlation, suggesting that environment always matters, just as genetics always does. Now, real quick, I wanted to point out that some have criticized the Minnesota study for methodological reasons. For instance, some have argued that the shared in-utero environment may have a substantial impact, but was not really considered. Additionally, as the twins in this study had already been in contact on average for over a decade, It was possible they learned to emulate each other's behaviors or traits during that time period. Additionally, there's been concern that there was too much emphasis placed on the similarities between the twins, as you mentioned, David. Right. Yeah, with the differences being downplayed. So that's kind of a a confirmation bias, right?
1: Sure, can be.
0: But there have been other twin studies as well. In a meta-analysis of twin studies called The Heritability of Everything, published in the Journal of Nature Genetics in May 2015, the authors found that identical twins, who share again 100% of their genes, have an average correlation of 0.6 on traits. A perfect 100% correlation would be represented by a number of 1.0, just to kind of put that in perspective. And when we look at dizygotic or fraternal twins, there was an average correlation of 0.3. So not as high as for the identical twins, but it also wasn't no correlation, which would be represented by a number of 0.0. This suggested that while genes do play a role, they aren't the full explanation for any trait. That being said, we do know that some traits are more affected by genes than others. For example, studies have suggested that bipolar disorder is accounted for more by genes, which accounted for about 70%, than by environment, which accounted for 30%. Now, that certainly shows genes are important, but it also shows that even if one has a genetic predisposition towards bipolar disorder, it doesn't automatically mean they will develop it. So I think the real take-home message is that it isn't nature versus nurture at all it's pretty much always nature combined with nurture. Okay, now one other area I really wanted to discuss as it applies to Neubauer's studies is that of ethics. Ethics are extremely important any time we're doing research or any sort of evaluation or treatment with living beings. And of course, while it's extremely important in animal studies, it's even more important in human studies. David, we've discussed in prior episodes institutional review boards, or IRBs. Right. So these are entities who review applications for research studies to ensure the rights of human participants are being protected. IRBs were actually established with the National Research Act in 1974. But this was not the first time the treatment of human participants, which used to be called human subjects.
1: Right, I was just going to bring that up. And so, in the Mangala studies, or the Mangala experiments, you can't even use the term participants because these people were not participating in anything. They were subjected to something.
0: That's a really good point.
1: Right, but they, they changed that terminology later on because just like you said, to sort of honor the fact that this person is coming to a study willingly. Right. And they are participating in it.
0: Right. Yeah. And so this National Research Act in in 74, it wasn't the first time that this issue had been brought up. Um, It was in 1947, actually, that the Nuremberg Code was established in response to the atrocities that were called, quote unquote, research conducted by the Nazis, including Dr. Mengele, during World War II. So anyway, in 1974, we have the first legislation creating IRBs, and these continue to exist to this day. Any of our undergrad or graduate psychology students are probably very familiar with these. While there has been some criticisms of IRBs in the sense that some feel the pendulum has swung too far the other way, in the sense that safe and important studies get denied due to kind of this over or extreme risk aversion.
1: Right, which is something that we talked about with Dr. Richard Nisbet.
0: Right. I mean, there has to be some balance. But I think pretty much everyone agrees that there needs to be some oversight to protect the rights of research participants. So what do IRBs actually require? I won't go over all of the criteria, but some of the most relevant as it applies to Dr. Neubauer's study are that participants should not be exposed to unnecessary risks, the anticipated benefits and knowledge have to outweigh the risks, and there has to be informed consent. So one thing to point out is that it can be very difficult to evaluate the ethics of prior research based on current standards. As we've discussed, these studies took place prior to the National Research Act, so I do think we need to keep that in mind. In Neubauer's study, we could argue there was not any real effort to minimize the risks to the participants. However, the Louise Wise Adoption Agency did receive the recommendation from that psychiatrist who was not involved with the study, and she was the one that said it would be more beneficial to the children if they were raised without their twins. Now, shockingly, I wasn't alive at the time of these studies. I know that that's hard to believe, (laughs) but it would seem plausible that this might have been a belief that some psychologists and psychiatrists had at the time, that it was better to raise twins apart. I don't believe there was any research that actually backed up that claim, but I could see why someone at that time period might have believed that.
1: Well, again, at first glance, it seems self-serving, like it was a decision made to make it easier for them to place children into homes.
0: And that certainly could have also been what was going on. So what about the potential benefits in Dr. Neubauer's study? This question is even more difficult to answer because no one has ever seen the results of this research. I would say that because it's never been published, there really are no known benefits at this point. I don't know exactly what Dr. Neubauer's intention was regarding publishing the findings initially, but we can assume that something happened that led him to seal this information until 2065. So that brings us to the issue of informed consent. Anytime we do research, and really anytime we provide any sort of medical or psychological services, we have to obtain informed consent. This includes alerting the possible participant of the potential risks, as well as the potential benefits. They also have to be informed that they are free to withdraw their participation at any time. This way they can make an informed decision about whether or not to move forward. So this brings up the question about research that uses deception, right? Sometimes researchers need participants to be unaware of what they're actually measuring to protect against things like the placebo effect or other conscious or unconscious attempts to modify their behavior. Research using deception can be permissible as long as a researcher does something called a debrief afterwards in which they explain what was actually being measured. I think we can safely say informed consent did not occur in Neubauer's research. The adoptive parents were not informed their children were twins, and the twins, once they were old enough, were also not informed. Now, some might argue that if they were separated not for the study, but for their own quote-unquote well-being, this information would not have to be shared.
1: I think that's exactly how Neubauer skirted that issue.
0: Right, and really most adoptions during that time period were closed adoptions, which were designed to protect the privacy of biological parents. Okay, but it seems like this is very important information that should have been shared with the children and adoptive families. What really bothers me is that even after all of this was exposed, there were no efforts to contact people who were part of the study to, one, tell them they had a twin somewhere out there, or two, provide them with the data that was gleaned from their unwitting participation in this research. It's pretty appalling to me that there may still be people out there who were part of this and still don't know.
1: Right, I agree.
0: So now that begs the question, what do we do with this information? Once it's released, should it be published knowing the ethical violations that occurred? The American Medical Association, or AMA, actually has an opinion on this very issue posted on their website. Their stance is data from unethical studies should almost never be published, with very few exceptions. Instead, they encourage the experiments to be redone using ethical models. And when this is not possible, and the information is of extreme scientific importance, and it's supported by other research, and it has the potential to save lives, it may then be published only if it's noted the data came from an unethical study. It further must be described why and how the study was unethical, provide ethical reasons for why the information is being published, and acknowledge those who were victimized by the unethical research. Given that we have other ethical twin studies, and that the information from this study is unlikely to provide any new or crucial information, I don't know that the results will ever be published. I suppose time will tell, but I do think that participants should have access to the data. And my understanding is that those who are aware they were involved in the study can now gain access to that information. But it sounds like it still may be pretty heavily redacted.
1: Yeah. Uh, that was David Kelman's experience.
0: Well, and I, I do think that that's very unfortunate. I understand the need to protect the identities of other people who are involved. But at the same time, I feel like these individuals have a right to see, you know, what observations were collected, you know, what the data was. Yeah. So I think that this was a very interesting, fascinating case, and it brings up a lot of different ideas and questions and concerns, Um, but I think we're going to wrap this one up. So thank you to Mark for suggesting it, and if you have a great idea for an episode, you can send those to us as well at our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can find links to some of what we discussed on this episode there on the discussion page. You can also find a link to our Patreon page, so please check that out. We're coming up on the Season 4 finale. David, can you believe it?
1: Finally!
0: I know! And we will be joining some of our patrons for a live Q&A after the finale. And we would love for um, lots of you to join us. I think it's going to be a really fun time. Plus, we're going to be releasing more Patreon-exclusive content while we're on our season break. And David, we have merch! Yes, we do. So, everyone, the holidays are coming up, and who wouldn't want some Psychology After Dark merchandise as a gift? (laughs) I know that I would want it, and I know that all of my loved ones are probably getting some this year. Right. So, we do have some pretty cool items on there, and it, of course, helps to support our podcast, so please check that out. And with that, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liscus, both provided by Jamendo.